Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Telegraph's official Super Bowl 58 recap podcast. Wait, that's not right. Let's start again. It's the Telegraph Rugby Podcast. And after two rounds, we have one obvious title favourite. And for the rest, just a whole lot of questions, really. But fear not, because Charlie Morgan, Charles Richardson and myself, Ben Coles, we're all here to try and make as much sense of it as we can. Hi, Charlie. Morning, Colsey. Hi, Charles. Hello. Where were you both this weekend? In and around the Twickenham area, Ben. Um, yeah, I took in, took in England-Wales um, yeah, and then stayed there for the rest of the weekend. Great. Ditto. How was it? Brief, briefly before we dive in how was your oh no sorry how was your Twickenham experience because you know a lot of stuff last week about you know revamping the atmosphere and trying to improve it more well, annoying more yeah. annoying I think, I think I think we'd been around it hadn't we we'd been around the build up and we'd been listening to Jamie George for, and it felt like sort of two three weeks given that they're away in that first fixture and they'd made such a big thing about it re-engaging the crowd to be honest the only bit of it that I really picked up apart from the new sort of playlist was them trying to do a sort of half lap after their warm-up and because nobody was there because they were all watching the end of um, Scotland France there was a bit of a sort of rousing swell of volume and then nobody really picked up on it so it was a bit of a, da- a bit of a damp squib and then it's always it's always the rugby comes for us as as to be fair uh, Freddie Stewart said in media before in the build-up he said look it's our it's our responsibility mm. to rouse them with our performance and when they missed two or three openings early on in the first five minutes it felt like a classic Wales are going to hang in here make this a dogfight suck all the energy out of it and they did that brilliantly mm. I mean it, it was it was a strange one because it was when it goes a bit flat which you know it's live sport it can go a bit flat and people who are buying a ticket you know you, you take that risk and you, I don't think anyone's expecting it to be sort of razzmatazz from minute one to 80 but when it went a bit flat it was very sort of artificial right get, get the band going get the band going get that brass band going you can almost imagine there's somebody there going, "Come on, it's gone a bit flat." Get, you know, get, get that sousaphone up and running. Um, so it all just felt a little bit forced. I'm going to bet a lot of money there was not a brass band. There, no, there was. Head. Was there, there actually? Was. And they did. Um, Aini Kamosi, here comes the hot stepper in what? brass band form. What in breaks in play? Yes. Wow. Okay. I know. Well, I, well, actually, that sounds a bit better than I thought. Um, there's an extensive, not that that wasn't very informative from the two of you, but there's an extensive write-up on the website by Joshua Hughes who, who went and did the. The fan experience. Um, this is this is where one of you asked where I was because I can't ask. Myself. Where were you, Colsey? Oh, thanks. Um, I was at Murrayfield, where, where nothing controversial happened at all. And, and how panicky was the rewrite or or on the whistle? That's why I want. It know. was more um, more a colossal reassessment of what we were going to do, and then suddenly sitting in the press box and rewinding the BBC's coverage and trying to 
pause and capture every bit of dialogue between television match official and referee and actually also counting the number of replays that the TMO looked at 10 is the answer before you double figures before you ask 10 although the last two were were um, were rock and rolled until they died because because, <laughs> because he looked at them for so long four four minutes it's like kiss wants to rock and roll all night oh that's good and party every day that's good yeah so Murrayfield was um i mean the, the Murrayfield atmosphere is great i don't i mean Apologies to Twickenham, but I, I really like Murrayfield as a place. What, what place was it sort go. of peak during the game? Um, what I what I should say because there are flat patches and that. The reason game. the atmosphere was probably so good was because the French fans travelled very well, and and actually the whole walk from Edinburgh Haymarket Station to Murrayfield, which is about twenty minutes, I, I barely saw a Scottish supporter. All I saw were groups of French supporters who who clearly come over and, and were very excited. And when we'll get into the game but after the the Gail Fiki break and the Duan van der Merwe somehow not getting penalised for stopping him short of the line the boos afterwards it felt like you were in Paris actually so so well done to the French fans mm. well done to we, we've spoken before they love a boo and they're really good oh at it. they're so good at boo and a whistle boo and a whistle honestly they, they really brought uh, a lot of entertainment to a game which was controversial as we said and we'll get into that but let's start at Twickenham where England edged past Wales in a in a tight game which I think has left us with a few questions. Okay, guys, Charles, I'll, I'll start with you. In England getting past Wales. Two teams who are clearly trying to figure themselves out, aren't they? And I don't know, how did you feel about England coming away from it? Well, at least they got the, the W. At least they got the win, um, which was, I think, sort of bare minimum First 10 minutes, I think we've seen this a lot. First 10 minutes, they showed signs. They were bright, I think, ball in hand. Um, and then they just... The indiscipline cost them. The, the two yellow cards are always going to make things a little bit more sort of staccato and a little bit more difficult, both defensive, on, on, you know, on both sides of the ball. Yeah. They're building. There were positives. The scrum went very well, and they've, they've identified that as somewhere where they need to improve. Uh, line-out was good, even with, um, at one point, two... Uh, you know, two forwards in the bin, two two, two line out jumpers in the bin. Um, but yeah, they need they need a bit more oomph. I mean, how how often do we say this? We we say this literally every 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 sort of post mortem of of England, win or lose. Um, we sort of say they need a bit more. Oomph. They haven't really got that in midfield at the minute, as in they haven't even got the, a player available for it in midfield at the minute. Hopefully, they will by the time they travel to Edinburgh. Um, they do have some forwards who should also be coming back and who might do better than the ones who are currently there. I'm thinking the likes of George Martin. I'm thinking maybe start Ellis Genge and Dan Cole to have the Genge carrying threat from the off. And and then you have to start Dan Cole with him, I think, because I don't think you can bring Marler and Cole off the bench together. Um, into, when when the game's breaking up, you don't want those two defending together again. As I said last week, no disrespect to the pair of them. Um, we had letters about that. Yeah. <laughs> Family members writing in, and, yeah. and uh, Chandler Chandler Cunningham South has looked really lively off the bench. As has as has Theo Dan. I think I probably keep those two on the bench for now. But certainly, there's a there's a certainly a, a, a rejig up front that could happen just to give them a little bit more. Because they did, they did some nice things, England, and, and and they really did. But but they were lacking in thrust. Charlie, I'm torn how to approach England. I I don't know whether to um, to preach patience like we did at the start of the tournament and to just 
accept that things are going to take a while or I don't know whether to be disappointed and because I'm not quite seeing enough progress where do you where do you sort of sit on that fence I, I certainly don't think you could be blamed for for feeling that you're not seeing enough because I think what uh, th- that's why this next game against Scotland at Murrayfield is so interesting isn't it because by that time they'd have been in camp for five weeks so these excuses about cohesion aren't really valid anymore I wouldn't I wouldn't say um their defence, if you take both their defence and attack just in, in, in isolation, the defence was tested in a different way against Wales. They didn't, a, midf- a Wales midfield of uh, Johan Lloyd, Nick Tompkins and, and George North were never going to move the ball as um, fluently as Italy did. Um, but there's some tough nuggety carriers in there and Johan Lloyd's quite quite sparky. So it was sort of tested on the on the front door a bit more and there was a little bit of... A um, little bit of weakness there by England, but what was most impressive to me is that they backed that system. They continued to double down on it, and the, the kind of key moment that I've written about from the game was um, just after um, Wales's penalty try, England down to thirteen. They backed that rush to under Wales. It was really, really interesting because it was uh, Wales have scored quite a few tidy long range tries at Twickenham in the last few years, and down to th- and with England down to thirteen, they had this one chance to sort of really. Put a bit, put a bit of daylight between them and England. They back their attack. England back their defensive system. England win the turnover when when Atoji sacks Lloyd and then um, Benel goes off the base to score. That was a huge moment in the game. I thought we always we always another recurring theme of kind of looking back over England games is kind of justifying the stodginess by saying how they've been compromised in other areas. And they were. I thought the Chesham yellow card was super soft. Yeah, and I thought was. the root and I thought the roots yellow card was super was. super soft as well. So and Steve Borthwick was desperate. To, to talk about that without sort of breaking his rule, which which is which is not to kind of single out and, and slag off refs, but he um, but he was just saying, look, the, the penalty count in the first half remarkably was six six nil. Uh, Wales were Wales were sque- squeaky clean despite sort of going quite hard at counter rucks and things like that. So for England to sort of work their way out of that is qu- is quite impressive. And their eight wins from nine, with a single loss being by points to the World Champions, which feels nuts, and that might have crept up on a few people, but. They are certainly justifying the old um, what, what Steve Borthwick keeps saying, which is that they're finding a way. Those two yellow cards, the the Chesham one. I mean, James Dolman, the referee, has said that he's always upright, which I just fundamentally disagree with. I don't think he is, uh, and I think the contact to the to the head is minimal. I mean, I think it's telling that they they stumbled for ages, didn't they? Ever getting the pictures up? They for some reason they couldn't get the the footage up, which again was another thing that uh, just another little thing that added to sapping a bit of the mm. life from the Completely. from the atmosphere. Because even in the press box, you were sitting there going, "Come on, you've, this has got to be better." I feel like that's happened um, in another game in the Six Nations already, where, yeah. where it's taken a long time to get. Perhaps, and you couldn't blame the, the French TV directors for this one this time because it was, it was in England. Some, uh, someone will have done. It. Yeah. Um, uh, and it was telling, I think, that when they were stumbling over getting the footage up, the TMO said, oh, we can't get the pictures, but it's just penalty only. Really, just it's a penalty here. And then eventually they got the pictures up and then they were like, oh, it's a yellow card. Mm. It would have been insane had they upgraded that to red, I think. And it was the quickest. It was the quickest, ever, the quickest review turnaround, which sort of told its own story as well. And then on the Roots one, I think there is an argument that maybe he does collapse it. But there's absolutely no way on earth that Wales were scoring a try there because both Toje and Roots himself had the ball. They were basically wrestling each other for the ball. Wainwright had lost the ball. So even if that, even if Roots hadn't collapsed the ball there, there is no way Wales were scoring a try. 
it, it looked harsh at the time and it, it didn't get any better on a rewatch that one. This is not making excuses, of course, because, you know, there's a lot more that happened in the game. And, you know, there was that brilliant George Ford 50-22 as well, which we're not touched on, which was an, an incredibly uplifting moment and really the match-winning moment. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they were England were hamstrung, weren't they? They were hamstrung by half-time and, you know, these things should be out of their control or should be in that these things are out of their control should not be affecting the result or the the final score of the match but they did a bit but even so the, the better team won I think you Charlie said that the chess and yellow card was a bit like Abraham Simpson that sort of giver he just comes in and out of the room straight away yeah well, we had we had Brendan Pickerel TMO on the on the ref mic obviously um, and listening and it, it was kind of jarring how he came in because so often you see those and you go oh that's that's going to get called back mm. for that so it's one where you didn't see at all and the coaching point to Chesham is that Sam Underhill's already stopped Azirati and he comes in slightly unnecessarily mm. is, the, is the one thing you potentially say to Chesham, but they're looking to dominate those collisions all the time, aren't they? Even in sort of inconspicuous areas of the pitch. But yeah, Brendan Brickle was sort of quite guiltily going, yep, that's going to stay. Anyway. <laughs> and he was just like, oh, well, should it be flagged anyway? But, you know, it, it, it is what it is. They, 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 were, they found themselves in that situation and did pretty well to get out of it. Just with the defence, and I, I say this with the Super Bowl, fresh in my mind I, I think people can probably forgive an aggressive defense which makes mistakes because you can see the intent a bit like when when teams blitz in in american football it, the attack i think is is more of a a grievance and, I, and i'll open it up to to either of you are you kind of scratching your heads a bit about why england just do not are not effective as an attacking team it's it's i, I wrote that it's kind of Still read the still read the piece on the on the website as a sort of on the whistle analysis. So um, be patient with it. But the um, but the I think this has kind of got it's been an issue that's lingered since just before half time of the final in 2019, and it's and it's important because scoring in fives and sevens just builds confidence. And if and if you don't, and if you and if you mess up those opportunities, the pressure comes back on you. And that ju- it just really felt that way in the first five minutes when they didn't have anything to show for some really good stuff on the counter. Freddie Stewart carving straight through. Freeman, Ford and, and Mitchell combining off another kick return. And then off the back of that, I think it's Stewart puts Daly, puts Daly right through. And all of that's really tidy, but they've got nothing to show from mm. it. And they also uh, botch a five-meter line out. After half-time, Daly gets um, forced into touch by Cameron Winnett. And even when they finally score, they finally score two tries, two, one from a piece of individual brilliance from Ben Earl off the base of a scrum. And then off a really, they, they almost contrived to blow a really kind of obvious overlap mm. when um, when the connection between Ford and Daly isn't particularly smooth. I thought Daly was going to drop that. Yeah, to be, I mean, Daly's an interesting one. What it, I think why it's so difficult to fix is because it's potentially to do with the entire balance of the side. And you want carriers in the pack but you don't want to um, compromise on your line out you want um, carriers in midfield but you don't want to co- compromise on your ability to get the ball wide and that's why over the next couple of weeks Steve Borthwick is, is in a bit of a tight space because does he bring back Ollie Lawrence or Manu Tuilagi to give him that thrust at the expense of Dingwall when Dingwall's been pretty good as a, as a link man um, does he bring back Someone like well, Alfie Barbary probably probably doesn't sound like he's going to be he's going to be in the mix. But does he bring back more thrust in the pack at the expense of you know having this um, well drilled cohesive set piece operation? It's really it's really difficult. I think I think if Manu or Ollie Lawrence are fit, then they're straight in at twelve, aren't they? Yeah, but then but then you are you are you attacking are you ta- are you having to attack in a totally 
different way. You've certainly got one fewer ball player and there's more onus on someone like Elliot Daly when if you yeah, it's it's just it's just so difficult and that's why it's so tough, I think, to um you know, without knowing on how much they're working on it and how they're prioritising training weeks and they've clearly had to put in a lot of time on in the on the defensive side because it's a totally new system. Um it's, it's, it's tough to know where, where they turn and how they get better quickly. Will Greenwood made a very good point in his column um, for the Daily Telegraph at the game, which was essentially the risk-reward of this defensive strategy is, all, is fine, really, and leaking tries is fine because it will take a while for this new system to bed in and to get fully up to speed and to get to the level that Felix Jones wants it to be, and that's fine, but then you're going to have to score more. It's, it's about scoring more than the opposition, so if you're going to leak... 28 points, not that they did against Wales, but they might in the games to come, then you've got to score 30 to win. And at the minute, it doesn't look like England could score 30 points to win a, or to win a test match, and especially not against Ireland, probably not against France. Although I think that that could be closer than many, which we'll come on to, that could be a closer game than many people are giving credit for. Could they score 30 points at Murrayfield? I'm, sh- this, I'm shaking show? my head. No, I, I, I don't know if I see it. And obviously... Um, all points matter, which segues nicely into George Ford's conversion. And we've got a bit of audio from that from George, so let's hear what happened there. To me, it doesn't make sense to me that, mate. I'm trying to, trying to use the full shot clock time because we've got men in the bin. Um, you're at the back of your stance and you have your routine and if, if adjusting your feet maybe like that is initiating your run-up then... Yeah, I'm not too sure to be honest with you. But we're gonna to have to stand at, like statues at the back of our run up now, you know, like. But it's right because a lot of the thing with kickers is is like you you want to get a feel and like you want to. And sometimes you don't quite feel right at the back of your run up, so you, you adjust it a little bit and like right there, I've got it now, I've got it. You want your chest to be the be at the ball and all them things. So, um, I think what it means for us as kickers, we've got to be ultra diligent with with our setup and process because if the if they're going to go down that, that route and look for stuff like that, then we can't, we can't afford that. That's George Ford there on the conversion. Um, just quick opinions on that. The, the, right, the right call from the officials? I think so. I think George, George, George Ford was fizzing even, even doing that interview in that, in that huddle with us. And yeah, I think he gets, I think he might be able to hear, he gets asked, um, do you want to talk about that? And he was like, yeah, I do. And it, it really confused him. He was clearly angry at the time, but I... It was quite an obvious movement, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and I think I understand why he's why he feels aggrieved because the law had always been approach the ball. That that that's when the charge starts, and he didn't approach the ball; he moved sideways. And but now it does say in the world rugby laws, there's been a clarification in 2020 that it's in any direction. That's the first thing which he should be aware of. If he's not, then I can understand why he feels aggrieved, but he should be aware of that. The second thing is. He, he claimed that it was to run the clock down and, and, and slow the game down a bit more because there was a man in the bin. Well, just wait before putting the ball on the tee. Run the clock. There's no you, there's no obligation for you to put the ball on the tee. You can just stand there, run the clock down for thirty seconds with the ball in your in, the ball in your hand, then put it on the tee and then go through your normal kicking routine. You don't have to stand there like a melon doing your kicking routine. I, I didn't really understand that part of his point. Him no. sort of going, I was I was running the clock down, and yeah. <laughs> James Holmes probably going. 
Cool. You yeah. you still move. Yeah. 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 Well, they can't they can't charge me down. I'm, I'm running the clock down. Yeah. <laughs> you wait for a, a charge down conversion or a conversion error. Now we've had two in a, in a few months, yeah. haven't we, without Thomas Ramos? So you know. Well, I mean, this wasn't even charged down. Well, no, I, I, pre- <laughs> I, sh- didn't I appreciate it. As I said, it does it even count as a charge down conversion? I, I guess it, it technically does. It went backwards technically. Um, the great thing <laughs> Rio Rio Dyer didn't know what to yeah. do when yeah. he arrived. Yeah. So yeah. How many, yeah. got there and stopped? How he? many times like, has uh, he tried to charge down a conversion? And all the time, clearly not knowing what well, he's going to he, do. When that's he gets true. There. He's probably never got that far and actually yeah. been in a position. But who was it who took the initiative? Was it Thomas Williams? Oh, I think it was D. I was think it, it was, was it D? D. Booted it. Yeah. Good old, good old D. And um, speaking of, of of D and Wales, it, did you weirdly come away from this more impressed by Wales, given where they are with a an extremely young side trying to find their way? I thought the the kind of interplay leading up to the try for um, Alex Mann was particularly nice with Tommy Reffles' mm. sharp line. Great question. I am not sure. I, I felt that so much of their performance was geared towards stopping England, spoiling England, frustrating England, and they did that brilliantly. But sometimes, I don't know, sometimes you, you a side can be capable of that and then almost that makes it less clear how they're going to move on and be proactive about proactive about their game. I think they that, that try um, showed that they've got, you know, good footballers they've got incision when they want it it's how often they can do that for a lot more there's a really nice um, really nice ball from Johan Lloyd when Rio Dyer came round from blindside wing and Daly bites on to Dyer and that leaves a space for win it and it's George Ford's scramble that just stops what would have been a really really nice try off second phase they've got the they've got the ingredients now and it's but it's there's, I feel like there's still a bit of a lack of clarity about how they move forward and connect all those bits of their game and I think as you know Gatland has been um, totally open about how patient supporters are going to be. Um, word on Tommy, Tommy Raffaello, he was yeah. fantastic. And actually, I th- he's, he's, he's just a genius around the tackle area. People sort of, peers just rave, rave about how the, the minutiae of what he's, what he's looking, looking at around there and how he thinks about it. But he's always been pretty, um, he's always had a lot of poise and skill about the way he handles and, and migrates to those wide channels. It's good to see that at I, test level I too. saw people saying this a, a lot. Can we start giving player of the match awards to players on losing teams? I was just again? about to say that. Because exactly. it's, it's getting really annoying. Like you could have he was easily player of the certainly match. Certainly in Scotland France, which we'll get onto as well, there were better candidates for player of the match than, than Gail Fiku, even though he scored the try. And, mm. and Tommy Raphael sounded like the best player on the pitch. By, by a mile. By a mile. Um, just that point about Gatland and patience, I I think it's quite interesting because I, I I'm trying to recall. I haven't been around him much in this Six Nations, but have they? Has Borthwick said similar things? Because I feel like when Gatlin says, "Be patient, we need a bit of time," everybody says, "Okay, fair enough," and, and sort of believes him. And I just wonder whether that's because of Gatlin's track record having won slams in the past, or do England do people just not believe England because they don't think it's good enough? Well, I think this is where you're getting. Um, a real contrast in in how they both approach it, both Borthwick and Gatland. Borthwick hasn't, to my to my knowledge, ex- explicitly said we need to be patient, but he's also kept a lot of very experienced players around um, to sort of ease this transition. Whereas Gatland has gone, you know, broom out new 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 start with you know the few, the few sort of more experienced players like George North, Josh Adams around, but largely in you know epitomised by say their captain and their fly half it is it is a really raw side so he can just link back to that and say look if we keep this group together then it's we're going to see progress whereas whereas England have sort of got that safety blanket and therefore they've actually got less I think to um 
to sort of to, to point at when when they're saying be be patient with us. And, and just going back to Wales quickly, and, and what you, you know you asked earlier about how impressed we were. I think, yeah, I was I was more I was more, I was more surprised by how fluent and organised they were ball in hand and, and how intelligent they were ball in hand at times. But I think you've touched on it already. The Ben Earl, the Ben Earl try. Okay, that is very, very well taken and a bit of individual brilliance from England, but that is arguably the ropiest bit of defence you'll see all weekend. I'm glad you've said that because I thought that watching the, the clip afterwards having not been there. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a, a, a sort of missed, poor attempt at a tap tackle from Thomas Williams. Then Alex Mann is slow. I know, I know it was only his second cap, but he was slow off. And then uh, I think it was Johan Lloyd, maybe one other... I've just got absolutely nowhere near him, and and you know Ben Earl is a very good player, but he's you know for, for really out and out an open side flanker, and really you've you've had an open side flanker there demolish you like a world class number eight. Um, I know Ben Ben Earl is an excellent player, and that's not to take anything away from Ben Earl, but no, I don't think anybody going into that game would have sent would have said that Ben Earl picking up from the base and carrying into heavy traffic is one of his super strengths, you know, and for him to sort of embarrass you really like that is. Not good. Mm-hmm. Listen, an interesting game at Twickenham. Let's now chat about the other games of the weekend. Heading up to Murrayfield. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Right, he's gonna he's gonna interrogate me then about this game, Charles. Charlie, stick your hands up. Watching on from the uh, Twickenham press room, I j- I couldn't believe how badly France attacked and how they, and that it, they and what it's kind of what's bled into what fit felt like bled into this week was their reluctance to kind of have that foundation of kicking at times and go through more phases, um, and when they did that, it just looked horrible. So France's new attack coach is Charles. Uh, Aletas, Patrice Aletas, who looks like Santa Claus and looks like he's about <laughs> 90 years old. He's younger than Fabien Gaultier. Is he actually? Yeah, he actually that's is. Not, that's not a detail I picked up on. Um, Charlie, you're exactly right. There was a passage of play not long before the Fiku try where they literally just went ruck to ruck, side to side, no depth, no variation in running lines, no kind of signs of someone really trying to take the attack by the scruff of the neck, no one really getting over the gain line where I just thought, I was trying. I was watching it. And I was thinking it can't all be 
not having Dupont and, and Intermac there because because we've seen that France can play well without well they can play well without one of them maybe maybe playing without two of them is but also hard. I, you know a further further argument to that is that Luca and Jalibert are the Bordeaux well, halfbacks the and they've got that continuity and Bordeaux are tearing up trees so there is sorry f- I've done him a dirty here it's Patrick Alatas that's, that's fine that's fine well, we allow corrections um, yeah so that so I I was similarly exasperated by how poor their attack was, but actually they were just dreadful all over the shop. They, they were, the kicking game was terrible. There was some comical catching of high balls from Thomas Ramos into touch. Matthew Jalibert, I think it was, who kind of dropped the ball quite obviously forward and then stood there looking as though someone had defended. He was furious, wasn't he? He was banged to rights. Yeah. yeah, it was absolutely ridiculous. And they just had no control over the game. And the only time where they suddenly looked like France was where... Francois Cross won a turnover on a Scotch forward. Might have been Sam Sam Skinner or, or Scott Cummings. Anyway, and they had quick ball all of a sudden. Forwards were getting over the gain line and they managed to suck in enough defenders for Fiku to, to basically immediately walked over backwards into the amount of space that he had on the far side. That was the only moment where they sort of showed some attacking intent and direction off that turnover because they actually, for once, had forwards getting over the gain line and ball carriers who were effective. I, I thought they were absolutely atrocious mm. for, for the first... I don't know 50 60 minutes and and really it, that reflects back on Scotland because Scotland were the Fiku try came totally against the flow of play yes I know Fiku had that break where Duane van der Merwe somehow didn't get penalised either for a seatbelt tackle or for them being offside at the following ruck because he never retreated I, I don't know how he got away with that but we'll just leave that one for um it, it didn't matter in the end, put it that way. It was going to be the big controversy. Yeah, and uh, definitely not the biggest refereeing controversy then, that happened and, at Murrayfield. And, and then it wasn't. <laughs> but they were, Scotland should have been so much further ahead. I thought Ben White and Finn Russell's kicking game was superb. They got great gain line carries out of George Turner and Matt Fagerson and Rory Darge. Rory Darge was, was great. Um, but, but they weren't ahead enough. They're only 13-10 ahead at half-time when they should have been 20-10 ahead. And, and there's two ways of looking at it because they turned down three kickable pen, penalties for the post in the final five minutes of the half they could have gone to the, they could have kicked penalties but they went to the corner once had two scrums and, and on the third scrum Cyril Bly makes um, Zander Fegerson collapse and, and France get away with it just brutal lessons I think for a team who were waiting who can play I, I genuinely having seen them the last two weeks they're quite a good team mm. like, there's depth there and, and they chucked in a 22 year old debutant at fullback in Harry Patterson who found out at 10am that he was going to be playing you look great. You yeah. look great. So I, I, I came away. Let's chat about the team thing next. But just a general point on Scotland. I think the frustration. Yeah, I get why people are annoyed about the decision. But actually, they should be annoyed with Scotland's performance as a whole because they had this game won, and they should have won it, and they should have been twenty ten up at half time, maybe even more, and they blew it. It's, it's also absolutely budget game management to turn down to turn down three points so so frequently to, to do it three times in a row. If I think. if you yeah. know when Ireland were doing it against Italy yesterday, rank favourites, Grand Slam favourites against I think you know one of if not the worst team in the in the Six Nations. You're sort of like okay, I understand that you're desperate for a bonus point. You're at home, blah blah blah. Scotland were not necessarily favourites for that game against France. In fact, I don't know what the odds were, but I'd be very surprised if they were favourites. Then I can't remember it. But, but even so. even so, just take your points when it's on offer. I know, I know, France were down to fourteen, but they were only missing a they were only missing a tired prop. You know, Winnie Antonio, who is not the most mobile of defenders, so it's not exactly like they had a massive. I mean, they have a they had a big hole to fill, France, but it, you know, it's it, it's not like they're missing one of their foremost defenders, France. Um, and yeah, just take just take the three lads. 
but what I think we should say is the second half was atrocious because France weren't getting anywhere, so they just thought we'll kick everything long and we'll kick everything in field, and we won't let Scotland have any set pieces to attack from. We'll just try and keep the ball in play and and hope for mistakes. And Scotland played into it. Scotland didn't disrupt that kicking game enough. They didn't try and you know attack more from within their own half. They just got sucked into it. Played into France's hands perfectly. Took the air out of the game as well because Scotland's momentum disappeared, and the, and it basically set up the situation where BLB Ari was came up with a wonderful chip and chase try. Don't get me wrong. Mm. All of a sudden, Ramos has got a penalty, and it's twenty sixteen. How good was Lagarek again? I th- I, th- it, I wasn't aware of how um, how tough a defender he is, and we know sort of Dupont adds in so. I think maybe we underestimated how, just how integral Dupont has, has been for that side. But Lagarek super super sparky. Not sure his pass to, to yeah, Barry wasn't forward but yeah. he's, he's so good so good around the breakdown he got a, got a turnover straight after coming off the bench against against yeah. Ireland didn't he and then he was he really added when, when Scotland were in possession I thought France, France kicked fewer times than they normally would against Ireland I think it was something like 19 times in the whole game and then they kicked I think nearly 40 times against Scotland so arguably more <clears throat> than they might have done that is suggests to me that they were sort of trying to right those wrongs and they've massively overcompensated. Massively overcompensated. And also the second thing is, for a team that kicks a lot and who has five line-out jumpers, really, Mm. how bad was the line-out? How bad? I mean, I don't understand what they're doing with Malvacar and Marchand at hooker now because uh, obviously Malvacar is outstanding and an absolutely outstanding hooker, but so is Julien Marchand. And they had always, always liked to lose pick Marchand as to start, then Marvaca to come on with in the last 30 minutes because Marchand is awesome at the breakdown, which is another area that they've been struggling at, and he has great arrows at the line-out. For some reason, they've just gone, oh no, let's let's turn it all around and we'll start Marvaca now and we'll have Marchand on the bench. And the line-out is really suffering. And that is, that is the most inexcusable thing about France, to be honest, because the, Dupont and Antimac have nothing to do with the line-out, mm. like nothing whatsoever. And they have five jumpers there you know both the second rows jump and the entire back row can get up in fact Olivon Cross are two of their you know greatest sources of line out ball and yeah. it just went completely to pot yeah yeah hence why they just wanted to kick and it was rubbish in, against in Ireland as well and avoid the line out but, but it worked thing is it, it's horrible to watch and you have the, the ridiculous situation where players are then standing still because they don't want to be offside after kicks and everyone starts booing because it, it looks absurd but it but it did if you from a French perspective it did stop people like Van der Merwe and Tupelotu being effective in the game because they, they couldn't have the carries to get over the game line. And and Scotland all of a sudden were behind. I, I just Before we get onto it, because we danced around it, I just wanted to talk about how great I thought Kyle Rowe was off the wing, I think, in two games now against Wales and against France. Where he's really lively, fantastic for him after a, a really nasty um, leg injury a couple of years ago, which which was pretty serious. He's come back and he's brilliant. Sorry, Charles, we almost to... almost won in the game at the end, didn't he? It was well, only that, a fantastic Jalabert um, try saver, really. Well, and in a way, it's his break. I know he knocks on at the end of the tackle, but that leads to the scrum from where um, Russell makes the turnover on Legarrick. I mean, Legarrick didn't get much wrong, and then we got to the end. Um, right, let's talk about it. I think you'll probably both agree with me that it is probably a try in that the ball has been grounded on the line. But because of the question asked by referee Nick Berry, no, sorry, but because of the call made by Nick Berry in the field of no try, you, you're going to need 
rock solid evidence to confirm it and and after four minutes and multiple replays there just wasn't enough evidence it was the wrong call but for the right reasons mm, yeah uh, which is a strange thing to be saying but rugby is a strange old game isn't it yeah yeah i mean he he gave it on field um no try held up therefore the evidence that the TMO has to be incon- sorry, com- incontrovertible, completely conclusive, like undoubt- undoubtable that there was a try scored. I don't think you get that. I know there's a there's been stills going around Twitter of a, of a circle around a ball on the floor. You, it looks like it's down. Yeah, it, it probably is, but probably is not good enough when it's on field, no try. The issue comes when Nick really in the sort of whole culture of refereeing and the ball going over the line, they should be giving more tries, I think, on field in those sort of scenarios because that looked like... If there's a finger underneath, that's that should be on-field try and then we'll go and have a look upstairs. Luke Pearce is giving that on the field, isn't he? Definitely. Well, after after the evidence yesterday in yeah. Ireland, Italy, well, oh, yeah. Luke Pearce yeah. is definitely giving that on field. So you'd, um, you'd have preferred a sort of along the lines of is there any, any, is there any reason why I cannot award kind of yes. question? Yes. And, and then you would have needed... You would have needed concrete proof that it had been held up and Correct. not been grounded. Which you didn't get. Yeah. Isn't a real mess from this from this exchange between Nick Barry and Brian McNeese where it seems like Brian McNeese is giving him the green light to to well, give it. Yeah. And then and then Nick Barry sort and then and then Brian McNeese seems to sort of row back. It was that point again, yeah, to take behind the curtain. We were just about to go up to our seats at, at Twickenham and that was I thought, oh okay, Scotland Scotland won it well, because Yeah, and, this na- is and naturally everybody Everybody who's got a ref link in the stadium is seeing Brian and he say, "I think the ball is on the ground," and, yeah. and is therefore thinking, "Oh, great! Well, that's a that's a try then." But the, but the truth was, he he couldn't quite see it, and so he checked another few replays. But then at one point, didn't the tables completely turn as well? And Nick Berry early on is is going on the field. He's going, "I think I can see the ball down here," and then Brian Manish is going. Uh, I'm not sure it's like completely conclusive. I'm not sure I've got a conclusive angle so, for you. So Barry, Barry never, Barry never says that right. directly. He basically just, he basically just echoes whatever Manny says. Right. So when he says, when Manny says, I think the ball's on the ground. Barry just repeats. So you're telling me that it starts on the leg and then the ball's on the ground, and, and that sparked confusion because I right. think people thought Barry was agreeing, but actually right, yeah. he was just repeating. And actually, that was one of Gregor Townsend's points afterwards. He was sort of saying the referees stood in front of a massive screen can we not give a bit more power to the referee to actually just look at the footage and make a call as opposed to the TMO? Look, it, it, it's messy. Scotland fans, I, I get it. I get why you're aggrieved. I, I can. It probably was a try. And yes, it would have won the game and you would have been two from two. However, like I said earlier, the game should have been won earlier. You were the dominant team. You were the better team against the France team who, who look a bit of a mess and relied on some individual brilliance from their young winger to get over the line. Look, it's great drama, as, as Gautier saw afterwards in the press conference with a smile. He was like, what a great idea to have four minutes of video replays just to build up the suspense for the audience. And then when I said, well, would you like them to be a bit shorter, the process, he went, no, nah, in the end, I'm happy yeah. with a big smile. Gonna, he wouldn't have been bantering around if, they'd, I mean, if it had been given. I know. So dr- dramatic at Murrayfield. Dublin Dublin's slightly less dramatic, Charles, but, but very impressive what Ireland did to Italy, wasn't it? Certainly second half, yeah. Certainly second half, they were very impressive. I mean, they're impressive first half. It's just that Italy were better in the first half. Um, and it's just, they're, they're so clinical and they're so ruthless, Ireland. I thought I thought Italy in the first half, um, in terms of like the flashiness of some of their attack and the progress and, and, and sort of success of some of their attack, um, matched Ireland in the first half at times. Italy, but the, the difference was that Italy just couldn't sort of 
all the plays and all the ball that Italy were using was all on halfway and in the end it was just too easy for Ireland to sort of just lap it up, lap it up, lap it up. They could concede 10 yards and then they they knew that Italy were not going to go 50 metres and score. Italy just refused to put boot to ball in that area and they were playing some nice rugby and they did make some yards but it was all around halfway, they couldn't get any territory. Ireland conversely would be winning penalties, kicking into the 22 and then you've got to try. Uh, there were, I think it was three 22 entries in the first half, three tries, two conversions. It was That was game over. That was just game over. Italy, at that point, were 17 and 19 points down. And that was just completely game over. And just in three, bang, 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 three entries into the 22, three tries. I mean, you, you, you compare it to Italy in the juxtaposition with Italy, but also the juxtaposition of England as well, of how England have played some really nice attacking rugby and desert would you know after 15 minutes against Wales deserved in adverted commas to be in the lead and yet it was nil nil and then you look at Ireland and every single time they're in the 22 they're scoring uh, kind of an amazing stat from Russ Petty who we, we will always plug on the pod for as long as we have a podcast who said that it's the first time that Ireland have been nilled have nilled a team sorry since 1987 which I, th- I find particularly impressive in sort of the Andy Farrell kind of Joe Schmidt areas mm. that we've just had given how dominant they've been can't believe that no no yeah. team is teams must just be sneaking three points and happy with their lot i'm gonna to have to apologize to russ here as well because i actually used that stat in the blog yesterday without crediting him because get out of the studio because itv just said it without crediting him so i just put it in the blog assuming it was an itv original so you're gonna do itv dirty instead yeah i like that absolutely stitch them up no, no qualms, Charlie. I'm going to put the pressure on you. Are, are we are we now staring at back to back Grand Slams? Yeah, I think we were. We were upon Paul, Paul Valenza's red card, weren't we? A bit. None of us picked France to win the tournament, nah. did we? No, <laughs> I mean, no, Ireland. Move on. We'll move on. Um, but it feels that way, doesn't it? They look good. They look really, really convincing. Um, just yeah, just then speaking about their defence, it's almost like oh yeah, they're good at that as well. But because what you associate with them is with what you associate them with is just this relentless intricate phase play where somebody like Jack Crowley can step in and just look brilliant they it, I was just kind of thinking back to how we'd rate all the sides after two rounds and Ireland not only have they got those two impressive performances the second half against Italy drifted a bit didn't it but um, they've they've won convincingly twice um, while blooding Joe McCarthy Jack Crowley even Calvin Nash come in and hasn't really hasn't really missed a beat it's, it's seriously impressive stuff the yeah, they, they're tw- I checked they're twenty point favourites for Wales uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Then they're um, then they're at Twickenham, um, Scotland. Scotland, if they get there, we spoke about this, didn't we, previously? But if Scotland get their act together, can they can they trouble them? Well, they've just they've just kind of um, they haven't really made a dent on that rivalry for quite a while. So it's looking looking pretty inevitable, or as, or as inevitable as it can be this far out. You haven't mentioned another impressive another impressive debutant who was eight year old Stevie Mulrooney singing the uh, the anthem before kickoff. Who I think was uh, we didn't do a moment of the weekend, but I think that's an obvious that's an obvious one. Yeah, wasn't or, it? or Dan Sheehan diving for the uh, five meter line when he thought it was the try line at the back of a driving ball. That was, a, that was another corker. What point of the game was that? First was, half. First half. Oh, so still, you know, yeah, not not no, a no, done very deal. much not a done deal. Okay, okay, no, I although it was a done deal, but yeah. Um, uh, I thought the, young, thought the young lad on the on the doing the anthem was just fantastic, and and more of that, please. And I know we're we're coming off 
a French choir disaster at the World <laughs> Cup. But individual singers, talented singers, they should do all of them. Andy Farrell's comments afterwards, Colsey, you, just you were tickled. I've got them in front of me. Just because it sounds like he, he actually played, where he was like, <laughs> where Andy Farrell said, I thought, this kid's got it all. He was amazing. It sounds like he came on and had an amazing cameo in the second half. But then doesn't he douse it by saying it was, it was a good start? And oh, yeah, he means so, good start yeah, to the day. He nailed it, didn't he? It was a great start. <laughs> feels like he's, he's sort of dowsing the hype ahead of like the, the, at the start of a big test career he's, he's, he's going to be moonlighting as the Irish independence uh, music critic soon Andy Farrell an he's, off, he's off to the opera in Dublin last it, night hey, bit of bise whatever works he's clearly given them a little five point head start so, so good on him um, we, we'll, we'll get into preview stuff later but I, but I think Ireland will be fine like you've said Charlie should be fine against Wales could, Eng- could England really just very quickly could, I, could could you see it, Charles? I, I could see it. I don't, I'm not necessarily convinced it's going to happen. By boring them today? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In a sort of Springboks-esque right. performance from the semi-final at the World Cup. Yeah. I think that's the only way. I think, you look, it, and this is not completely pie-in-the-sky thinking. England had Ireland troubled for a bit in Dublin last year until the Freddie Stewart red card. They were really aggressive and they ruffled their feathers a little bit. That could happen. Ireland will not be looking forward to going to Twickenham. Um, and, and taking on England, despite the fact that England's record of late there has been a little bit ropey. Um, if, if England defensively show up like they did against South Africa and play like that, potentially with a few more strings to their blood, to their bow, um, there's a, there's a chance. There's a chance. The stars would have to align, of course, and Ireland will go in as as favourites, definitely. But especially if England, especially if England are, are arriving at that game on the back of winning at Murrayfield, they will be confident. They will be confident, and the in a sense, there'll be sort of one rung of the pressure off because they've won three games, probably going to get at least third place. And then you've got sort of a free-ish hit against the Grand Slam favourites and then going to France. You're on the podium. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. England are currently 10 to 1 to do the Grand Slam. (laughs) I mean, let's move on. No more preview chat because we'll save all that for next week. But you very kindly sent in lots of excellent questions. So let's... Dig into them. Will asks, is Finn Russell going to have a field day against the Felix Jones Blitz? Charlie, what do you think? He loves a little chip kick. I can't wait, is is what I think. But um, so clearly, so what we hear about Felix Jones is not only that he's he's kind of been embedded with South Africa for ages and clearly structurally sort of over, he's overbearing, overbearing structures from the Springboks. That's That's what he's bringing. But he's also really diligent as far as scoping out opponents weaknesses the sort of weaknesses and tendencies as of individual players that was something that came up i think it was francois Lowe told me that about him once um and as a case study of how to defend against finn russell south africa against scotland in the in the group game in marseille was fantastic they were really clearly had thought about where they were going to pl- apply pressure they had a lot of shooters um, in that 13 channel to just cut off those passes. And, we, and as we know from South Africa, they're, a, they're able to sort of adjust on the secondary. So if Finn Russell was going over the top with kick passes, which I think happened a couple of times, and maybe hadn't, hadn't happened loads, but it happened a couple of times, and the sort of defenders were able to bounce out again. For, um, Henry Slade is going to be a huge, huge player in that battle, and it is going to be really interesting Freddie Stewart's positioning as well and his ability to sort of shoot around um, in that aggressive pendulum that we that we spoke about and get on the outside of his wing is going to be really interesting. I just can't wait. Just can't wait to see how it plays out. And on a drizzly, dank day, what it could be at Murrayfield, that would 
surely play into England's hands even more, really. Well, I, I said this in the, in the piece about the uh, defence, is if England get ahead, their, um, their defence and how they defence becomes ev- how they defend, sorry, becomes more valuable because they've got that scoreboard pressure mm. um, and therefore a team is potentially going to overplay and give them, give them these opportunities. So they just have to connect up their game, England, um, and take chances and then that, that makes their defence more powerful. But I, yeah, I, Finn Russell versus Felix Jones, what a cool, uh, cool little contest. I just wanted to note on Finn Russell, um, over the last two weeks, the, the chip kicks have actually, there haven't been that many, but the tactical kicking has been really, really good. And so I'd, be, I'd like to see how he can sort of shift England around and potentially get them opened up to counterattacks, which they probably don't want to defend if Scotland can get the people coming on at pace. Yeah, it's a really... Kicking against England at the minute, the approaches have, have been sort of mind-boggling for me. I think South Africa did it, and Wales almost did it as well at, at the weekend, which was just, oh, Freddie Stewart's really good under the high ball. We'll see. We'll, we'll just keep on we'll keep on bombarding him. We'll see how good he Don't really is. Feed the strength. Yeah, I was going to say that. The, <laughs> yeah, the spoiler alert: he is really good under the high ball. Wales kept on doing it in the first half and just getting no change whatsoever out of him. That is not the way to expose Freddie Stewart in the backfield. You know, he is not the quickest, not the most agile, not the most athletic of fullbacks when he's on the ground. He's very athletic in terms of his spring. Um, move him around you know and that's what where Finn Russell's tactical kicking will come into it more move him around in the backfield move this pendulum around move England's back three around don't carry on giving him his favourite food all the time because he will lap that up he will lap that up I um, wanted to move on to a question from Chris which is directed towards you Charlie about your article on attacking composure and should England move on from some players who have historically shown a lack of composure themselves or just stick with the squad? I, I, I guess what he means by that is, is it a personnel issue or is it more systemic? I, I would say the latter, but I'll let I, you... Yeah, I think the latter um, because, you know, there are players that have been been part of that, um, part of this whole kind of period where they've not been particularly um, good there that aren't there, you know? So um, there's a new, you know, there's a new scrum half, there's new, there are new halfbacks, for, for instance, Um so yeah, I do think it's more about system and more about balance to selection and the the sort of I think the personnel will be. I don't know for sure. You know, Chris might be Chris might be right, and it's a good certainly a good good point. Um, but I would say that balance and just that maybe a few additional ball carriers. Um, yeah, that I would say that would be more pertinent. The funny offshoot from that is, I guess that it's not you can't clearly identify one player who is. Letting it all gaffing down. it all the time. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's just all not great. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. kind of the it's kind of the wider point. Um, question from Adam: uh, With Mike Catchy to leave Ireland this year, is there any possibility that England would look to bring him in? Haven't seen any progression coherence in our attacking game so far, and we consistently fail to turn territory into points. In my opinion, Wigglesworth isn't the answer. I mean, you're certainly right about the failure to turn territory into points. Would would my cat come back into the fold? I'd, I'd be, I'd be interested, but I'd, I feel like he wouldn't. I doubt he would. First of all, and England might want him, but not in that attack coach role. I don't. He was more sort of skills and like individual, the sort of, the, the sort of you know, sort of specifics and the, the minutiae, as, as you said earlier, the minutiae of, of of attacking plays. What he did in terms of the shape and and the patterns, that's sort of been a Farrell thing, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The more, the more you speak to people around the camp, the more influence Andy Farrell seems to have on the wider framework of how Ireland attack, which is the mm. sort of overbearingly impressive thing, right? And that's and that's what England need. 
Yeah. The, the skill side of things is is the or need to improve certainly the skill side of things is is not so is not so bad really and obviously they've got um, Andrew Strawbridge who's come in who's working on a lot of those individual skills I know it's more at the breakdown but he's they have guys working on skills already Kevin Simfield is also working on skills alongside Strawbridge and yeah I, I don't think Cat would come back really sort of hinted at the beginning it is the unknown for us um, on the outside is how much time they're devoting to it all and, and it looks like Felix Jones has made an immediate impact in how they defend it looks like that has been a big um, a big slice of their time together that's what they've been working on clearly to go to the next level they're going to have to devote the same time and energy to that attack as well I mean hopefully some time has, has gone into the attack you'd but, hope so you'd yeah, <laughs> yeah you'd hope so I know, I know what you mean though um, question from Andrew given the increased levels of abuse officials are receiving nowadays do journalists have an increased responsibility not to stoke the fires when they're emotional even if they don't like the decision that, that's an interesting question because I think we do try our best to be as pragmatic and desensitised to it and just try and call it as we see it I, I, I certainly think that we try and avoid just calling referees out kind of brazenly if we can because like you say it's not very helpful and and also occasionally we we need to look at things three or four times to get it right and referees often don't get that opportunity i mean i i warmly encourage everybody to watch the the whistleblowers documentary which i think is on rugby pass tv but hopefully it'll get a wider release on youtube because it's a great insight into just um well into the abuse that referees do get but also just the, the complexities of the role and, and how much time and devotion is, is going into it sorry Charles you, you know. no 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 it, it's, it's a complex issue obviously on the one hand referees are not immune to criticism and uh, you know the, the, the criticism is vital for, for them sort of for, the, for their continual improvement and to you know keep pushing referee standards up and up a bit like criticism that and, and analysis that the players would receive from a, from a personal standpoint I'm sort of be, I have felt an added responsibility after what's been happening in the World Cup to not certainly pour fuel on the fire. Not that I was—I wouldn't say I was a particularly sort of guilty party beforehand, anyway. Well, I was well, not to, getting not the to pitch pull back the, out. the curtain, but you referee as well. Yes, yeah, so, no, absolutely. So you're, yeah, you're kind of a, in a more sympathetic position than most. No, I would say absolutely. Um, and um, although I don't get a chance to do it as, as often as I would like at the minute, because I'm. <laughs> Doing um, more fun things like going to watch England at Twickenham. Sorry, um, slagging, yeah, yeah. Just slagging off, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but no. So, so, from a personal standpoint, I had this debate with um, somebody in the comment section of the Telegraph, actually, and I sort of said that they were very annoyed uh, in a Premiership match. I can't remember which one now. They were they were pretty sort of put out that uh, the referee got the decision wrong on the field. A, a quite obvious, made a, quite an obvious error. Okay, but the TMO came in. And corrected him, and he corrected his decision immediately. And the the, the 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 subscriber to the Telegraph in the comment section was very very annoyed, and he and he saw it he saw it as a as a glaring example of rank incompetence of this referee. And I sort of went back to him and said, "Well, I mean, the officials have a tough job. We know that, and they do see themselves now more and more as refereeing as a quartet." with the two assistant referees and with the TMO, and I'm sort of of the opinion now, yes, it was a bad call from the referee, it was, but I'm sort of of the opinion now that if we get the correct outcome with the four of them, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean that segue is actually quite nicely into our last question from Mark, who says, should rugby get rid of the on-field decision rules and just ask the TMO to make the call? 
it feels like the process is hamstrung at the moment. So you're basically, you're effectively by doing that, taking all power out, well, all power, most power for key moments out of the referee's hands and putting it into the TMOs. I mean, I've literally just heard Gregor Townsend two days ago say the opposite, that the referee mm. should be having the final say and the TMO. There's there's an argument that the TMO should just be for foul play and, and not for kind of try decisions. I mean, I don't know. What do you two think? It goes one of two ways, doesn't it? It's it's either it's either all power to the referee, but we, we saw the danger of that in, in the... Um, Italy game, didn't well, we? I mean, if you take Scotland as an example, if the TMO has the final call there, that's still not a try. If the TMO has complete, absolute power there, that is still that we've got, got the same outcome here that, that France are winning that game. The only way that that is given a try to Scotland is if the referee, who on the day was Nick Berry, who is the closest of all the officials to the ball, gives it, or at least goes, I think a try has been scored. Mm. So in order for the Scotland try to have been given, if it was a try, it probably needs to be all power to the referee because I don't think that a TMO analysing that footage is going to go, okay, the referee's got no idea, but I know conclusively that that try has been scored. I don't think any TMO would do that. Shout out to um, Joram Mofana's leg for just being in the right place to completely obscure <laughs> yeah. you. Shout, shout out also for Tuilagi to, to because he does he... Is he waits until the ball's over the try line, so then he can just flop in. And with flop, he's like too big. This is another interesting that. subplot. In the, um, I was reading in Media Olympique, the French newspaper yesterday. Pasolo Tuolangi is adamant that he held that ball up. That right. even on that mm-hmm. angle that has been going around, he said, "My finger is underneath the ball." Given the size, which is finger. tenuous, <laughs> which is tenuous. But you know, we will never. This is the this is the whole point, is it? We will never know, which is why it couldn't have been overturned. It's, it's quite a big finger. It yeah, will be quite a, a chunky finger. To be fair, but him coming in from an offside position, he can only do because the ball's over the line, right? Yes, and, the, and, yeah. the, and that's, that's pretty clever. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, uh, someone's written about this before, haven't they? How how teams practice this. Mm. Trying to obscure camera angles and get legs in the way. I'm, I'm looking at both of you, and neither of you seem gonna, to think. Sounds like it, a good piece. Was Where it, was it me? <laughs> Maybe it was me. <laughs> oh, that seems like a good note to finish on. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Charles. And thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast and for downloading. If you're new, welcome along. Please spread the word. The three of us are going to be back throughout the tournament, so make sure you subscribe so you do not miss an episode. There's loads of coverage on the website with our columnists Warren Gatland, Will Greenwood, Brian Moore and loads of coverage from all of us throughout the tournament, so please keep on visiting. We'll see you soon. Goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.